Well, your assignment for this week is to complete the Bacchae by Euripides. And at the end of class, I'll show you where to find that. We're going to be reading it from the Gutenberg Project online because it's free. Because it is about 2,600 years old. But let's begin with the author and context. Euripides is the author. Euripides. E-U-R-I-P-I-D-E-S. Euripides. Euripides. Let me just go ahead and write some of these things on the board for you. Um, Ben, could you put the board right here for me? Euripides. Euripides was a, and this is a bold print term, a tragedian. A tragedian. A tragedian, perhaps. You know what a comedian is, right? What is a comedian? A comedian does comedy. Benjamin, do you need um, some assistance? So Euripides, a tragedian, a comedian writes comedy, a tragedian, a tragedian writes tragedy. And you can think of comedy like this, it goes up, warm, heartwarming, fun, happy ending, and a tragedy goes down. Yes, Amelia. A tragedy, and here's a bold print term you need to know, usually revolves around a noble character who struggles against various challenges, suffers, and fails due to his internal flaws. I know you haven't watched this, but Breaking Bad is a tragedy. Better Call Saul is a tragedy. There's certain shows where the character is flawed and things go from bad to worse. In the Bacchae, which you're going to be reading, the primary character's name is um, Dionysius, Dionysius, who was a god of wine and parties and revelry and fertility. And we'll talk more about him a little later. But the main other character, the second main character, is Pentheus, the king of Thebes. And he is the one who has a tragic fall. Um, the Bacchae could be known as the the fall of Pentheus, or perhaps the fall of Thebes. And it's it's mirroring, or it's by analogy, pointing to the fall of Athens, which we will talk more about as the time goes on. Uh, Consider the Iliad that you just finished. Was that a tragedy? Yeah, if it was a tragedy, who was the main hero that fell due to his own pride and anger? Yeah, Achilles. It's the fall of Achilles, really. The fall of Achilles. Now, Euripides, we're still talking about our main author here, was a tragedian, a tragedian, a, a playwright. He lived during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, so, you know, the 400s BC. And Ezra and Nehemiah, you should be familiar with. They are the, some of the main rebuilders of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. You also need to know the names of the three other great Greek tragedians. Aeschylus, Sophocles, and then our guy, Euripides. Let me write these on the board for you. Not easy to spell. A, Aeschylus, A, E, S, C, H, 
Y L U S. Escalus. A E S C H Y L U S. Sophocles. A little more familiar. S O P H O C L E S. Sophocles. All three of them were Athenians. They all won major awards at the Athenian Grammys, so to speak. And they are the only three that we actually have their entire plays still preserved. So these are, this is sort of like uh, George Lucas. Trying to think of Steven Spielberg and M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, these are like the these are great writers, producers, playwrights of their particular era. Now Euripides is writing in the midst of the Peloponnesian War. Bold print Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta. Sparta was victorious, and that ends the golden age of the city-state. Of Athens. So the city state of Athens had a golden age, classical Athens, under their democratic uh, city state politics, uh, political situation. And that's where we get the writings of Plato and Aristotle, which we're going to be reading throughout this whole year. But toward the end of their reign, as their city was crumbling and Sparta was about to completely annihilate them. Euripides is writing this play called the Bacchae. And the context, sort of the context and the lesson of the Bacchae behind the scenes is the fall of Athens. The downfall of the Athenian classical culture. Let's move on. Next subject, the significance of the Bacchae. B-A-C-C-H-E-A. Bacchae. B-A-C-C-H-E-A. The Bacchae, the play, essentially questions whether or not the Athenian vision, the Athenian dream, the the Athenian worldview could save man from himself, save man from the capricious, arbitrary nature of their gods. We can think of our political leaders today. What are some of the slogans that political leaders have today? Make America great again. What a dream. What a vision. But can his vision, can his worldview actually succeed in making America great again? What about sin? What about depravity? What about the dark side of humanity? Will he and his political policies be able to suppress those darker urges and bring about a a place of peace and prosperity? What do you think? No. Is there salvation by law? Is there salvation by politics? No. What about, um, I remember it was uh, Barack Obama's famous uh, slogan, uh, a future you can believe in. Or a future, or no, that was Hillary Clinton. A future we can believe in. A future we can believe in. Hmm. Do you think their political policies, their worldview, and they with the, the reins of power can overcome the dark side of humanity and bring about global utopia and societal evolution? Do you think they will be able to accomplish that? No, of course. You see, the Athenian world was originally organized by what's called the oikos. 
This is a term you need to know, oikos. O-I-K-O-S. That's a Greek term that you know from Greek class. And what does it mean? Greek house or household. Okay. It has a range of meaning like any other word, but it can mean a household. Earlier Athenian culture, which would be before it was really even called Athenian culture, but earlier Greek culture was organized by households, what we think of as a tribal society. Can the tribal society organized by households, can that overcome the dark side of humanity, rid the world of sin and bring about peace and prosperity? No. And so there were blood feuds, tribal warfare constantly. So one of the, the innovations of the Athenian world was to bring tribes together under a social contract. You need to write that down, bold print words, social contract where various tribes came together under sort of a mutually beneficial political organization. And they formed this compact, or this social compact, this contract, the social contract, and formed what is called the city-state, or, and here's the, the term for you, the polis. The polis, from which, of course, we get the word political or cosmopolitan, the city-state. And so the innovation of democracy, of social contract theory, of coming together of various tribes into a political union with elections and voting, and that, that did bring about, to some extent, an a, a era of peace and prosperity in Athenian culture. But the question is, can man be saved by a new, innovative political structure? Can that regenerate the hearts of men and bring about salvation and peace and prosperity? What do you think? No. Once again, no. The oikos cannot save, but neither can the polis. And neither can a one-world government or a national government. There is no government or political organization that can suppress the dark side of man and bring about flourishing in society, not without Christ and the regenerating powers of the Holy Spirit. You know that. And so the Bacchae, written toward the end, toward the demise, note again our trajectory here of a tragedy, the Bacchae written here toward the demise of the Athenian culture is kind of behind the scenes showing that the polis cannot save man from the madness. As you will see, this play has quite a bit of madness in it. I mean like tearing people's limbs off kind of madness. Blood, guts, and gore sort of madness. So that's sort of the significance of the play. Um, what as Christians can save man from the darkness, from the madness, from the worst elements of himself? Of course it's Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. But does Euripides have any of that? No, of course not, of course not. Now, if he were to walk about 800 miles to the uh, southeast, he could have come across men like Ezra and Nehemiah and found the gospel, but he didn't have it in his, in his life. Let's move on. The main characters, Dionysius, D-I-O-N, Dion, Y-S-U-S, Dionysius. And Dionysius is like Hercules. He's half God, half man. 
He is the son of Zeus. And Cadmus. I'm, I'm assuming you know how to spell Zeus. Z-E-U-S. Cadmus. C-A-D-M-U-S. Dionysius. And the more we talk about this, the more this will come become familiar to you. But Zeus had an affair with Cadmus, a human, and thus birthed Dionysius. And he is our main character. He's a god. He's incredibly powerful. And Dionysius, so you understand his character, is the opposite, or the polar opposite of Apollo. Are you familiar with Apollo? Apollo is the god of war and law and order. Well, there's different names and different gods of wars, but Apollo is one of the gods of war and gods of order and god of law. If you think of Apollo as stiff, uptight, rigid, wearing a military uniform, all of his pleats perfect, his room is never out of order, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't care about women, he lives his life rigidly. Think of Apollo that way. We think of Dionysius a little different. Dionysius is a playboy and a drunkard. He loves the party. He loves the festival. He's the god of fertility and passion and wine. So you can see Apollo and Dionysius are, are sort of polar opposites. I want you to think of it that way as you, as you read the play. Now, Apollo is not so much in this play, but to understand Dionysius, I'm contrasting him with Apollo. But here's the thing with Dionysius and with wine and sex and passion and parties. Too much of it is not a good thing, right? See, that's the danger. The Dionysian element of life, the Dionysian part of you and part of this world is good, is fun, but it can turn into madness, chaos, and destruction. So think of that as you read through this play because that's sort of what happens in this. Dionysius has two roles in this place. First of all, he's the god over Thebes, the city, the setting where this play is. And he controls things much more than people realize. He causes people to be sort of spiritually blinded. He causes people to worship him, to go mad. He causes people to have fun parties dancing in the woods, literally, as you, as you will read. That's Dionysius. Now the Bacchae is a plural word referring to the worshippers of Dionysius. Bacchus is Dionysius's Latin name. So this play could really be called Dionysius or the worshippers of Dionysius. That's the Bacchae. And they're essentially a... a commune of hippies in the mountains, in the woods, who worship Dionysius. Okay? Now, can you imagine what a commune of quote-unquote hippies worshiping Dionysius out in the woods would be like? Yes. Can you picture it? Don't picture it too much, but <laughs> crazy, right? A lot of campfires, a lot of dancing, a lot of drinking, a lot of uh, perversions and and craziness, outside of law and order, outside of the city, outside of the restraints of, of the cops watching, 
You know, where do teens go on the weekend when they want to do bad things? They've got to go out of the city limits, down country roads, in the woods, drinking beer. Those are Dionysian worshipers. That's the Bacchae. Our hippies, peace and love at Woodstock, which we'll talk about quite a bit in a second. That's the Dionysian worshipers. That's Bacchae. Now, the second main character is Pentheus. And we're almost to the, the fun, very interesting stuff, so stick with it. You've got to have all of these sort of background things to get to it. The second main character is Pentheus. P-E-N-T-H-E-U-S. Pentheus. He is the king of Thebes. He's also the cousin of Dionysius. And he is the polar opposite of Dionysius. Just as Apollo is the polar opposite of Dionysius, Pentheus, he loves Apollo. Apollo being the god of Thebes, of the city of Thebes, by the way. And Pentheus is, a, is known for using law and order, strictness and force, and the sword to save his city from all corruption. Do you think his efforts will be successful? Can you use the sword to save a city from the darker evil elements of man? No, 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 no. But here's the dangerous side, or here, not the dangerous side, but the realistic side of people like that, like Pentheus, Pharisees, stiff law and order, no fun kind of people. No matter how many rules they make for themselves, no matter how early they set their bedtime and how many times they work out and how well they do their clothing and how structured their life is, they cannot save themselves from the secret desire to go into the mountains and watch, if you know what I'm saying. So Pentheus, Mr. Stiff Upper Lip, controlling the city, Suppressing everyone's fun, no joy, no wine, no parties, no Dionysian spirit, is secretly attracted to dress up as a woman, sneak off into the woods so he can watch. Oh, yes, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be a good one. All right. Uh, yes, you heard me right. <laughs> but of course, Dionysius, the god, is tempting him and controlling him. You understand it? But, but, it's, it's like his own Dionysian spirit, his own sinful nature. You'll see, you'll see. All right. So, any questions so far before we jump into some worldview discussions? Does everyone see what's happening? All right, real quick storyline. I don't want to ruin the storyline for you. And by the way, you're not going to enjoy the storyline if you don't read it carefully. If you, just, if you let your attention span drift... You're not going to understand what's going on, and it's not going to be any good. Okay, so if you sow some uh, seeds of hard work, you'll reap a, a better harvest in understanding what you're actually reading. So the basic storyline is this: Zeus has an affair with a human, produces Dionysius, Zeus's goddess wife. Y'all don't have to write all this down; just listen to it so you can kind of follow it in the story. Zeus's goddess wife is jealous, obviously, so she tricks the human into asking Zeus to display his glory and appear as a god. Well, Zeus does that. He appears as a god before, before Dionysius' human mom, and she, of course, croaks. She's burnt to a crisp because humans can't be in the presence of Zeus in his full lightning glory. 
But Zeus is able to save his half-human, half-god son, Dionysius. And um, the problem is, though, um, no one on earth, no one in Thebes, believes Dionysius is really a god. So they reject him. They won't worship him. They don't want to pay any attention to Dionysius and the spirit of partying and festival and wine and love and passion and fertility. They're suppressing that in their, in their Theban army-like law and order. So you have to follow the story through the basic plot structure, but you have to think beneath the plot structure to realize this is about a war within the heart of a person and the, a war between, uh, in the heart of Athens, the city. You, you understand what I'm saying? Can law and order and the politics of the polis save Athens from the darker side of the Dionysian festivals and party and the passions of man? And the answer, of course, is no. Of course not. So what happens, because no one will acknowledge Dionysius and they think they can rid the world of him, he comes to Thebes as a man. He's called the stranger. He's a handsome stranger. And he begins to promote the worship of Dionysius. But Pentheus captures him and tries to tie him up and torture him. But it's there in that moment that he tries to tie him up that... Dionysius appears as a bull. And can you tie up a bull? No. And so that you see behind the scenes is the idea of humans trying to use law to to suppress their more bull um, aspects. And the bull is the Greek symbol of fertility. So it's man trying to use law to save himself from his passions and from the darker side of festivals and fertility and partying. And so eventually, while he's trying to while he's being tied up and being tortured, a cowboy or a cow herder comes into the to the room and announces that he was off in the woods and he saw this giant commune of Dionysian hippie worshippers um, having a peaceful, loving time, but he couldn't really spot them and he was of course drawn to see them. And when they saw him, they went mad. And they chased him. And, and he was able to hide, but they, they got all of his cows and ripped his cows into shreds and began to eat them and devour them and, and terrorize them in their madness. Are you following me? So Pentheus the king, once again, going to suppress the passions of man and build, make Thebes great again by law and order, sends an army out into the woods, or wants to send an army out of the woods to kill all these Dionysian worshiping hippies. But Dionysius once again has his sway over Pentheus and he convinces him, no, why do that? What if I let you go out there and see? Tempts him within himself. And so he secretly dresses up as a woman, puts on makeup, and yes, they had makeup, fixes his hair, good drag queen story hour, and and he sneaks off into the woods to get a, a little taste of the Dionysian... Uh, love cult going on out there in the woods. Remember, no matter how much law and order, how much legalism, how much Phariseeism you have in your heart, you cannot beat the Dionysian spirit. Not through law. Not through law, right? And so then, out there in the woods, he can't quite get a peek. He really wants to see, but he can't quite see all that he'd like to see. And so Dionysius tempts him again says, I'll let you climb up into a giant tree. Puts him up into a giant tree, and right then, Dionysius reveals him, and all the worshippers—they're like, 
Oh, who are the worshippers of Justin Bieber? What are they called? The Bieberites. Bieberites. They're like they're like Swifties. All these Swifties who are are into this festival dancing, passion music, wine fest out in the woods. All the Swifties see Pentheus, the stiff king, up in the up in the uh, tree, and they recognize him. He's not a woman, and uh, and they well. It doesn't go well after that. I'll just leave that. I'll leave it at that. Let's just say pretty gruesome. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. But that's the basic storyline. But let's talk about the worldview a bit. You've all heard of the hippies, right? Now you might want to take a few notes on this, but mostly just, mostly just the bold print. You've all heard of the hippies. The hippies, what did the hippies hate? War. War. Corporate America, traditional laws. What do they love? Drugs, yes. Sex. What about traditional marriage roles? No, no, no. Did the hippies have a vision or a dream for how they could make the world great and bring about a future that we could all believe in? Yes, they sang about it. Peace and love, man. Brotherly love. Let the world come together. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones to make a brighter day. That's a little bit later in the 80s, but it's still the hippie spirit. It's still the hippie spirit. And the hippie culture in the, of the 60s culminated at an event called Woodstock. You probably know about this, at least to some degree. You need to write it down. Where they had nearly 150,000 worshipers. And what god are they worshiping? Weed. Weed? Yeah. No, no, in, in the context of the Bacchae, Dionysius, this is the Dionysian cult. They are the Bacchae. And they went out to this farm in the middle of nowhere, 150,000 people, where they engaged in all manner of uh, sex and drugs and lots of rock and roll. We've already talked about the revolutionary um, designs of rock and roll in our intro to the Psalms. But this was basically a whole festival saying to the world and saying to one another that we have a vision to make the world great, to suppress the darker side of humanity and, uh, and, and have a future that we can all believe in. The war was going on in Vietnam. Nuclear war was on the horizon. It was a bad time, and a lot of Americans, a lot of young Americans especially, believed in the hippie vision. They believed perhaps the emphasis on the Dionysian passions of, the, of life uh, is how we could save America and save the world. Well, not too long after um, Woodstock, there was another festival, a little less known festival, <clears throat> where 300,000 people attended. It's called Atlamont. It was in California, Atlamont. Altamont, sorry, Altamont. A-L-T-A-M-O-N-T. Altamont. And there, 300,000 people attended. More sex, more drugs, more rock and roll. But only this time, Dionysius sprung his trap. And he turned the wine and the revelry and the passion into madness. And riots broke out. And rock and roll artists had to flee for their lives. There were murders taking place and people being trampled. And the Rolling Stones, there on stage, eventually had to quit and flee for their lives because of the riots. Now I'm going to read you a line from a song. 
and you tell me if you can uh, recognize it. But it's a song partly written about the the uh, Altamont revival and the vision of peace and love and unity coming to a crashing halt in violence and madness and chaos. Here's the song lyrics. Oh, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. You ever heard it? Does it sound familiar? Oh yeah, you got it, you got it. But you see what he's talking about. He's saying he was standing there in the crowds at the Altamont Festival when he saw the Rolling Stones go on stage and he was in the riot. And there were people lighting fires and they had to run off and he calls it a Satan spell that came over the crowd. And the fires that were burning the rock and roll stages, he calls a sacrificial rite, like the Burning Man festivals. What happened there at Altamont? What was it? It was the passions of man. Sex, drugs, alcohol, turning into madness. The goddess Dionysian, Dionysius, the god Dionysius, sprung his trap on the hippie movement. And it was there that the music died. The, the hopes and the dreams and visions of a, of a peace and love and hippie America died there in the flames. The easy lesson here is that God wants us to party. God wants us to dance. God wants us to drink wine. But too much turns ugly fast. Got it? But there's another very important lesson here that man has a dark side to him. And that no law, no political order, whether it be the oikos or the polis, can suppress that. And that if you try to defeat your passions with law, you will eventually find yourself cross-dressing, walking out into the woods to spy on a Dionysian orgy fest. Not, Not literally. But you cannot overcome the passions inside of you through law? What can overcome the passions inside of you and give you self-control and self-government so that you can use those things like sex and dance and rock and roll and music and, and um, wine to God's glory? Only the Holy Spirit and His self-controlling power can help you have a balance in life between the spirit of Apollo and the spirit of Dionysius, so to speak, so to speak. Um, do you know people who fight the sin of lust by total abstinence, by taking a vow of celibacy? Sure. A lot of people. Catholic priests, for one. But do you think a Catholic priest, in his vow of celibacy, I will not have sex. This is how I will conquer the passions of my heart, the Dionysian spirit, through law, through oath, through self-control, through willpower. Do you think that Catholic priests struggle with lust? Yes. Well, we know from the news how many little children are being molested by Catholic priests. You see, you see, Pentheus learned this lesson the hard way, didn't he? You know people that try to 
fight the potential for drunkenness by abstinence. I will never drink. Look at those drunkards over there. Who are they in this story? They are King Pentheus looking over at the drunken Dionysian worshippers and saying, look at that, look at that. Not around here, not on my watch, not here in Thebes. We don't drink here in Thebes. But can that overcome the Dionysian spirit in the heart of a person. It cannot. And it will find itself out in other, in other ways. Right? Abstinence is an attempt to save a person through law. Whether you abstain from sex, or you abstain from alcohol, it's not wrong to fast. And, there's, and there are some seasons of life where you should say no to certain things just as a rule. But if you think that can save you, if you think that can suppress the darker passions in your life, I hope the Bacchae convinces you that there is no way to overcome your passions except through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of abstinence, the gospel of law. Can you think of any people group in the Bible that tried to use law to control the city, to control people, and to control the passions of themselves and others to form a good and godly city? What was their name? In the Gospels. A group that believed law could save. The Pharisees, that's right. So if you've understood everything we've said, the Pharisees are like which character in this play? Pentheus and the Thebans. That's right. Now, drunkards and people who are uh, gluttons and just give in to full vice, who would they be like in the play? The Bacchae, the commune of hippie Dionysian worshippers out in the mountains just giving full vent to their passions. That turns into madness, into chaos. How can we balance law and order and dance parties? How can we balance that? It only can happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of Christians that think the way to fight the Dionysian spirit is by law and order to pull a Pentheus. It does not work. They say no dancing, no drinking, right? No parties. And they judge other Christians that do those things. They judge them and they see other Christians doing those things and they say, aha, you see, you're sinful. But the danger of that is you, they don't realize the pharisaical, legalistic, trusting in law that's going on in their heart, which is a, just as equally a bad sin and an evil sin. Christians sometimes think that they can, that one side, the Dionysian versus the Apollonian, that one side is more Christian than the other. That law and order is more Christian than dancing and, and festivals. But they couldn't be farther from the truth. God has created both of those things in the world and there is a good way to enjoy all of them. Got it? Alright. We aren't um, called to deal with the Dionysian cult through escapism or through tyranny or through force, but rather through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, hopefully you can all learn that the easy way and not the hard way like King Pentheus does, as you will see. All right, any questions?